Many startups are aspiring to grow into their valuations from 2021. For most of them, this will take a couple of years at minimum. Even once they reach that target revenue level, these startups will need to show that at the end of that period, they can continue to grow fast. Since their valuation presumed they would be able to sustain high growth rates into the future. Mary D'Onofrio, a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, coined the term growth endurance. The idea is, if you're a venture-backed SaaS company, it's not unusual to grow fast to 1 million or 3 million in ARR. What is unusual is growing SaaS to 100 million in ARR and beyond. This isn't an argument for being a turtle instead of a hare. It's also not an argument for being a hare for longer distances, because the essence of a hare is the lack of long-term perspective. Companies that sustain high growth endurance blend the best attributes of the hare, speed, and the turtle, longevity. In this conversation, Mary and I discuss the origin story of the term growth endurance and why it matters. We cover topics like, how does growth endurance factor into Mary's investment decisions? What counts as good growth endurance? And what are the primary factors that allow a startup to have high growth endurance? You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript of the conversation. Let's dive in. Mary, I am super excited to have you on the podcast today. I love getting to know you over the years and learning about all your sharp insights into what it takes to continue to grow fast when you're at scale. In particular, you coined the term growth endurance, which, you know, is a subject that I'm exploring over this Substack series. So I'm really excited to go back to the source, learn about the origin story behind this and pick your brain about what it takes to be a late stage CEO. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. To get started, what is the origin story of the term growth endurance? Certainly. I've spent a lot of time thinking through uh, cloud metrics and through SaaS metrics. And I authored the Scaling to 100 Million report. And then I also managed the BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index, which is a public benchmark of cloud stocks. And when dealing with that index, I was really impressed that the average growth rate for a cloud index company often exceeds 30%. But in a previous life, I was an investment banker. And I would see a lot of analyst models and they would all have growth rate decelerating pretty massively over, call it five to 10 years to a rate of, uh, with a high rate of decay to some terminal growth rate. But to support, you know, a 30% plus growth rate at scale, which, you know, in that maturity, which is um, what uh, demarcates a lot of these public cloud companies, um, I assumed that that kind of rate of decay had to be wrong. So did some analysis um, of both private and public software companies and noticed that there is a resilience in, in growth rate in cloud, which I, I named growth endurance. Can you talk a little bit more about why growth endurance is important? Certainly. Growth endurance itself is the retention of growth rate from one year to the next. And it's important as it signals the extent to which a company can build momentum to exit velocity. If you assume, you know, the average BVP NASDAQ emerging cloud index company is growing 35% year over year, which it is today, at maturity, you can back into the requisite growth rates that you're going to need to hit that exit velocity and be welcomed into the public markets. And you can also assume that for a lot of strategic M&A activity, that high growth rate is also necessary to be creative. If you can't hit those growth levers, you might have to take another path. But, you know, in addition to just, you know, exit in and of itself, 
it often also signals, you know, market pool, customer velocity, and, and general interest in your product. So it's important both for the financing outcomes that you can anticipate and also as a proxy and a kind of heuristic for overall company success. So how does growth endurance actually factor into your investment decisions as a VC? I think it helps us to understand the ARR trajectory of the business. And given the consistency of growth endurance that we see in cloud companies, it influences where we think future growth rates of a business will land. So companies with higher uh, historic growth endurance year over year will likely retain those higher growth rates compared to companies with lower growth endurances. And as a heuristic, it helps you make judgments with imperfect information. So 30% growth decay for, for companies with private cloud, 20% for companies in public cloud. And it's also helpful with data. So as you know, companies have high growth endurances above 80%, it puts companies in line with those public peers and above 100% is rarefied error. So it kind of helps you to benchmark companies relative to peers in addition to, you know, as we're often doing as an investor, making decisions on imperfect information help you to triangulate. So to make sure I understand these terms well and the math behind them, it sounds like growth endurance of 80% means that you're sustaining 80% of the growth rate that you had last year, this year, and that would make your decay 20%. Is that right? Correct. And when looking at the average in public cloud, the average growth endurance is 80%. So what we think about at Bessemer a lot are these kind of good, better, best frameworks. We put 70%, which is the average for private cloud, into the good bucket, then 75% as a uh, better, and then best is the public cloud average, which is 80%. And obviously, there's a large distribution on both sides. So by no means do I want to say that this is, uh, this is the end-all be-all to achieve success and scale. And there are companies that have jumped between those buckets, like, for example, Procore early in its life was actually growing relatively slowly. And now, you know, growth endurance is high and has been for, you know, many of the past few years. However, we tend to find that the trend line is um, relatively predictable. Does growth endurance in terms of its benchmarks change depending on what your earlier growth rates are? So I think you might have mentioned this earlier. I'm sorry if I missed it. But if you're starting out by being sort of a best in class company where you're like quintupling, quadrupling, tripling, doubling, 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 are you more likely to have high growth endurance than a company that had lower growth rates earlier on? What we have found is that those trends continue largely throughout a company's life. As I was mentioning with Procore, there's an ability to switch between those kind of quartiles or quintiles or, you know, averages to get into a good, better or best bucket that you weren't in previously. However, you know, if you look at the pathway of many companies like Toast, for example, they stayed in the in the best category of growth endurance, basically their entire pathway. I think, you know, if you're quintupling to a million of ARR to five million of ARR, what you effectively have is just a little bit more leeway on experimentation and some ability to make a few more mistakes, given that, you know, if you if your your growth endurance is lower next year by 50 percent, you're still growing, you know, two and a half X. Um, and I think the interesting thing when you think about growth endurance is the implications from a starting point. So if you think about, you know, growing 300 percent, for example, to a million of ARR, a good company with 70% growth endurance can reach 100 million of ARR in 12 years, whereas a best-in-class company with growth endurance of 80% would reach $100 million in six years. And, you know, while again, just a heuristic, 
100 million tends to be the place at which we think at Bessemer and I think the market broadly thinks that that's kind of exit scale, especially in IPO markets. So you see how, you know, obviously growth is compounding, but that has a very, very high impact on, first of all, if you reach that level of 100 million, and second of all, how quickly you do it. Those benchmarks that you mentioned earlier, can you talk a little bit more about how you're determining the segments of the market that you're analyzing benchmarks for? Like, I think if I remember correctly, you said that the average for the public cloud is 80% growth endurance. In some way, I'm kind of surprised to hear that because I would think there'd be a lot of, you know, not every cloud company is all that well run. So this 80%, does it represent all companies? Tell me a little bit more about maybe the distribution. So, I mean, if you look at the histogram, the distribution is wide. There are like some companies that have growth endurance of call it 50%. And there are many companies that have growth endurances over 100%. 80% just tends to be where we see uh, the biggest peak. And if you plot this year's growth against next year's growth and you regress it, the answer is 80%. However, the histogram or the distribution of what those growth endurances look like in public cloud go all the way from under 30% growth endurance to over 150% growth endurance. And about 80%, 10, like between 70 and 100% captures about 50% or more of the public cloud companies. So there is truly distribution there. 80% is the regression. I'm thinking a little bit about why is it that not many companies succeed in growing to scale? And to give some context on this, your team at Bestware came out with your annual state of the cloud report a few months ago. It showed that while 520 unicorns were minted in 2021, only about 60 new $100 million ARR companies were added. And you gave those companies centaur status. So centaurs, as a result, are seven times more rare than unicorns with billion-dollar valuation status. So why are there comparatively few companies that have achieved the $100 million ARR threshold? And is it somehow related to their growth endurance? Yeah, I think there are fewer companies at 100 million because to get to 100 million, companies obviously have to have overcome many strategic and operational challenges to achieve like scalable go-to-market, strong product market fit, have a large and growing customer base that can propel it. And obviously those those outcomes are really difficult to achieve. And unfortunately, they aren't reflected by unicorn valuations, um, which you were talking about, because being deemed a unicorn is simply a valuation metric. And especially in the past couple of years, when we've seen deals pricing at, you know, 30, 50, even 100x, a company at 10 million of ARR can be a unicorn. However, that's a very, very far cry from being a $100 million truly enduring business. And um, as me and my partner, Adam Fisher, saw the definition of unicorns get farther and farther away from being an enduring business, you know, when the term was first coined 10 years ago, it only referenced a total of 14 total private companies. And so in terms of coining yet another term, um, we chose to think about what we thought was a true metric of an enduring business. And in our research at Bessemer, we have not yet found a $100 million business that has not endured or perpetuated in some way. Some of them have not become huge companies that changed the way that we live and work, but they have in fact perpetuated. So I think the way that it relates to growth endurance is that the ability to drive high growth endurance is also predicated on the same thing that drives you to 100 million of ARR, which is the scalable go-to-market, product market fit, and a customer pool. And so they're very directly related, even if not causal. What are the primary factors that you found have allowed companies to have high growth endurance? So first is go-to-market strategy. 
And I think the most effective lever in driving high growth endurance is your go-to-market strategy, whether it be enterprise-driven, PLG, cloud marketplace, or a combination thereof. And refining this obviously takes time. So we obviously recommend that you ramp only what works. Uh, The second is product quality. You know, in the past, excellent sales and marketing execution might be able to obfuscate poor product quality. But but now, you know, there's product-led evaluations and emphasizing the importance of delivering incredible proprietary product to your customers. And customer pull is first and foremost. And lastly is, is unit economics and cash efficiency. You know, you need to use your money well. You need to think about the experiments you want to run before you run them and make investments in the highest ROI ways. And oftentimes, on the path to 100 million, companies have to make a lot of decisions, whether it's new products, new geographies, new strategies. And oftentimes, this comes with a very, very close evaluation of relative trade-offs, priorities, and, and ensuring that those investments have high ROI. So I think that those are the primary factors that come to mind. Yeah. Thinking about go-to-market strategies and how they relate to growth endurance, you know, I see companies who are in the tens of billions of ARR pursuing different paths. Some of them have a market that is very large and not very penetrated, but it's ready to buy. And so the size of the market, maybe the growth of the market can continue to propel their growth over time. There are other companies that get very good at launching add-on products that they can cross-sell, others that become very good at expanding into new geographies. I'm wondering, you know, what do you notice in terms of the go-to-market strategies that are most likely to result in continued high growth rates for a long time? Like, Do you have a preference across those different options that I mentioned, for example? I don't know if I have a preference. I think that figuring out the growth rate that's going to drive your business is really predicated on the particularities of your product, your user base, et cetera. But I do think that those different strategies work well for different companies. So for example, I was referencing Toast in the past, which is a restaurant POS system. What they did is they started with their core POS hardware and software, but over time, they layered in payments and they layered in capital. And if you think about Toast today, revenue you know, in, in June was $2.2 billion, growth endurance above 100%, and payments process was over $23 billion in gross payment volume quarterly. So you think about how they were able to layer in a new product that penetrated their existing customer base to drive ACVs and therefore to drive uh, higher growth endurance and higher growth rates because they're basically selling more to the existing set of customers versus inorganic growth strategies. You can you know, acquire a new business to drive additional offerings to your existing customers. You know, Twilio acquired SendGrid that was previously led by a customer partner, actually, named Samir. And they also acquired Segment. But it's being able to offer more and more products to your customers, obviously, with the need to have a strong integration strategy, cross-sell, upsell strategy, and making sure that that's a platform that customers actually really want. But I don't know if I have a preference, but what I do have a preference for is ensuring that you run experiments and you do a lot of thought work and market work before making those investments. Makes a ton of sense. So to close this out, although I feel like we could keep talking forever, what is one tip you would have for founders looking to sustain 70 to 100% growth rates for years into the future? I think my one tip is that early on, teams are often thinking a quarter, a month ahead, but on the pathway to scaling and achieving strong growth endurance and getting to 100 million and beyond, leadership and finance in particular should be actively thinking about second act products, go-to-market strategies, hiring plans, and setting structures and systems at the company that will drive strong growth the years ahead. Oftentimes, the decisions that affect you two years in the future are made today. 
and thinking about roadmap and future planning rather than just, you know, how do I hit my number this month or this quarter is imperative. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. This is awesome to hear from you. Thanks so much for having me. 